That's absolutely hysterical. So I just started with the opening and we weren't even live yet. So let's do that all over again. <laughs> That's too funny. All right. So welcome to episode number 143 of Shut Up and Grind. I know I usually don't uh, stream on Thursdays, but tomorrow was a travel day for me and it worked out with my guest schedule rather than trying to reschedule since I'm booking into February. Figured it just makes more sense to move a day ahead. So today we're going to be talking about overcoming obstacles. And uh, if you're new to the show, and if you're watching on the replay or on the audio, welcome, because you guys are valuable as well. But uh, the show is all about overcoming obstacles. It's about storytelling, like getting to the heart of our guest backstory. And then we take you through their journey into how they become, how, how they became who they are today and what they're doing today. So again, if you're new, if you're joining me on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. If you're on Facebook, Hit that share button because we're going to give you guys lots and lots of golden nuggets and actionable motivational steps that you can apply today. So why keep that to yourself? So hit that share button for me. And if you're wondering who the hell is this guy and why should I listen to him, here's a couple reasons why. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. Starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. you got to know your work. And that's me in a nutshell. So before I bring on my guests, we're going to have our teachable moment. And today's teachable moment is to stop doubting yourself. Okay, stop doubting yourself. So as a gym owner, I see it all the time. As an obstacle racer, I see it all the time. People defeat themselves the second the obstacle or the roadblock arises, and they just defeat themselves. So I see it in the gym. I'll put a kettlebell down. Oh, I can't lift that. It's like you didn't even attempt to lift it. And then they end up not only lifting it, they end up carrying it, or they end up swinging it, or doing what whatever whatever it is the exercise calls for. But initially, you look at the task and you just defeat yourself. And that doesn't motivate anyone. That doesn't inspire anyone. People say, oh, well, I don't want to get hurt. Nobody wants to get hurt. But you can't grow without going through some type of pain, without going through some type of adversity. So when you step into that power, your whole world changes. And you guys know I say this on the show all the time. You know, great, like achieving great heights means that you have to go through great adversity. It's, it's just how it works. There's no other way around. If you want to become an elite obstacle racer, you have to go through hell to get there. If you want to arise to the top of your, your profession, you're going to have to do the things that the other people won't do to make yourself the obvious choice. Like, that's just how life works. So when you come up to an obstacle, instead of defeating yourself, say, what do I have to do or who do I have to become to make that happen? And once you make that mental shift, everything is going to change for you. So... Let's get to my guest. So this is going to be an amazing next hour, next 55 minutes, because this person survived cancer not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. Like, that's absolutely amazing. If that doesn't just show the will, you know, the strength of the human will, I mean, we can have we can talk the whole show on just that. But wait, there's more. So after being thrown out of a Las Vegas hotel in a drunken haze, jeopardizing his career and relationships, this man had to make a change. So as I stated, he's a four-time cancer survivor, the type 1 diabetic, recovering alcoholic with four herniated discs, nerve damage, and sleep apnea, a.k.a. he's a walking, talking, breathing hot mess. But 
He defied it, he defied it all when he found obstacle course racing. So refusing to accept the circumstances, he finished numerous obstacle races, the Boston and Chicago marathons, and the mama of them all, the 30-mile Spartan Ultra, culminating in 127 miles of endurance racing in six weeks. So now, he doesn't just want this to be a story about a drunk diabetic cancer patient who overcame adversity. He wants to focus on the less physical achievements and more on his mental and spiritual approach to overcoming life's challenges. So now, I usually don't read bios that long, but I think all of that stuff is relevant. So let's bring this man onto the show, Nick Klingensmith. Come on in. Welcome, or I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's get that awkwardness out of the way. <laughs> We're just going to have a nice, fun conversation. And I left off that he is also the author of Through the Fire, which will be accompanying me on the plane tomorrow. Nice. <laughs> All right. So wh- where are you joining us from? I'm in Seminole, Florida. That's uh, just next to St. Petersburg. Okay, St. Petersburg. Tampa Bay area. Yeah, okay. Yeah, my, my, my brother lives out in uh, Sarasota. All right. So again, if you see me looking down, it's because I have a notebook. So like as you're talking, I'm going to be uh, jotting notes down. All right. So are you originally from Florida? No, I'm originally from Martha's Vineyard, um, oh, okay. Massachusetts. Ah, that's why that's why you knew so so much about Rhode Island. Yup, I uh, England man. Grew up there. I went to college out at UMass Amherst. Okay. Um, worked in Western Mass for about four years. Uh, lived in Milford for about a year, and then I moved down to Florida in 2005. Okay, and you you just fell in love, love with it, or, or what? Yeah, at the time, um, I hadn't run since high school. I was a competitive beach volleyball player, and okay. I used to go to tournaments in Newport and along the Cape and Connecticut. Um, but, you know, as you know very well, there's seven or eight weeks of summer, maybe in New England for real <laughs> yep. and God forbid it rains on a weekend. Next thing you know, the thing yes. that I love to do more than anything, I'm doing like five times a year. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I had the opportunity to leave. There was nothing holding me back. And, and quite honestly, I wanted to play beach volleyball year round. So that was the primary reason I moved to Florida. Yes. Love it. And, and you're right. Cause I play in leagues on Sunday. I play, well, I didn't do softball for the fall league, but, but I'm actually playing uh sand volleyball and same thing. It'd be beautiful Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then you see rain Sundays. Like, seriously, like I guess two days a week and this is what you do to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I know I'm bummed I have to miss, miss this, this week's game, but you know, Indiana's calling. So got to do what I got to do. <laughs> All right, so let's get to know you a little bit better. So, how would you how would you describe yourself? Who who is Nick? It's a it's a question that if I were asked ten times a week, I might have ten different answers. Um, mm-hmm. And at the end of it, Nick is a guy who is still trying to find his way in the world. Um, there's been a lot, uh, you know. So it, there's been a lot of different Nicks over the years, and. Sometimes you're responding, reacting to the environment or a certain phase of your life. And, you know, sometimes you're, you're trying to be in the driver's seat, but largely, and this is probably the, and I know we'll get into this a little bit, but I think the greatest takeaway from actually writing the book for myself is I was able to kind of look at things from a different perspective and I'm not done yet. Um, The amount of learning that I did, and I mean learning, like things that I really hadn't faced previously you know, and when I wrote the book the first time, the first draft, I wrote them, I wrote things the way that I remembered them the first time, the way that they made me feel. Yes. But as you revise and revise and you start to put things in a different perspective, you realize that you're just not done yet. So mm. Nick is a guy who's constantly learning and constantly trying to improve. Love it. That's solid. Your, your first sentence, you're the exact same as my guest Sabrina said a couple of days ago, like the exact same thing, <laughs> trying to find my way in life, <laughs> you know, but isn't that, that's all of us, you know, that, that's all, but like no one's, no one's done. And it, it doesn't matter what level you're, you're at financially or in your career. Like everyone's trying to just learn, grow and improve every single day, you know? So that's all of us. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. All right. So what was your childhood dreams? Like, what did you see yourself doing for a career? Uh, starting second baseman for the Boston Red Sox. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is actually funny, but since I was in first grade, I wanted to write a book. Okay. I wanted, I wanted to be a writer. Um, yeah. That was, you know, there were pockets of time, like in high school, where definitely got caught up 
with actual high school work, uh, a good portion of college. You know, I wasn't really doing a lot of pen to paper besides my assignments, but overwhelming majority of my life at various times, I've been involved just writing in something. Um, And so actually writing a book and then publishing it was, was an accomplishment of that dream. And, but to what we just said, I'm not done yet. Yeah. Yeah. So what type types of things would like, would you write about back then? So uh, ironic as it is, well, and a lot of people don't know this, but I was a private investigator for about 20 years. Okay. Um, Predominantly on Martha's Vineyard. It was my father's business. He raised me as, you know, as his number two, there was a lot of things I learned and we were involved in some, decent cases. Um, and what I want to do is I want to write fiction about a private investigator on Martha's Vineyard using real cases okay. and then just dramatizing them for, well, to make it interesting. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. going to really care that much about, well, I sat in the car for 11 and a half hours and waited for somebody to walk outside. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I love but it. I, I do like writing fiction. I like writing mystery. This book was the first time I took a crack at nonfiction. It was the first time I think I had something real to actually write about. Nice. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. All right. So take me through your your school your, your school years like did you did you encounter any type of any type of adversity going through school so i mean everybody's got their own frame of reference and background i'm going to say family life was a little jagged growing up um okay. parents both recovering addicts divorced and they were just trying to find out you know their way in the world too yeah. Um, given this was Martha's Vineyard, where the square mileage of about 27 miles. So when I say I moved around a lot as a kid, it's not like I moved far. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have a lot of stability. Um, okay. And I learned to be independent, too independent at a really young age, something that maybe served me well for a long time. And at the same time, turned out to be maybe almost a little bit of a detriment later in life. Yeah. Um, so. It wasn't bad. It wasn't like a, any sort of a uh, after school special or anything like that. Um, about I think when I was about 10 years old, my father had gotten divorced um, from his second wife. And then we actually moved in with my grandmother and she kind of became that stability um, for the next decade. OK, I did well in school. A lot of it came naturally to me, at least you like junior high and so forth. Um, once I got to high school, I was I was just sort of one of the average kids um, again, and then and then college I began to excel again. So school was something that kind of came naturally to me. Yeah. It was really about I wasn't athletic. Um, I was a short pudgy kid. I wasn't very good at anything. Um, <laughs> Hand eye coordination, not so much. And uh, so I was involved in, in what I could, I guess, at a young age to kind of be social, but I felt like more like I was like this awkward kid who yeah. didn't really have a place. Okay. All right. So you had mentioned that when you were 10, your father had gotten divorced from his second wife. You moved in with grandma and she kind of became the stability. Did you have a relationship with, with your biological mom? Yeah, for a period of time. Um by the time I was 23 years old, my mom and I no longer had a relationship. Um, but I don't want to say that she didn't try, but she was sick. Um, yeah. You know, she was she was trying and, and she was trying to survive in her own way. Yeah. And uh, motherly responsibilities just weren't something that was able to be a priority in her life. And you know, when you're young, you're you expect to have that kind of motherly love. I mean, it's like you're born yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, and I think for a long period of time, I resented that I didn't get it and I was asking for it or pushing for it. But there comes a time and I think I was in maybe my early teens where I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm on my own here. Um, and, I, you know, we stood in touch for a while. But by the time I was about 23, maybe 24 years old, there was decisions she made that made me realize I just needed to protect myself and I just couldn't be part of her life anymore. Okay. And so, like my two older kids, I I raised them. I mean, like I, I was I was in a relationship with someone else, but I mean, she, she wasn't their biological mom. And so, remember when my son graduated high school, he gives me a hug. You know, he's he's crying, and he says, "You know, thank thank you for always being there." He's like, "Thank you for never leaving me." He said, "But it would have been nice to just get a hug when I hurt myself every now and then." 
<laughs> and like even my daughter says that but like she'll be talking about something because like i'm i'm a problem solver that's just how i'm wired you know what i mean it's, it's just how i'm yeah. wired so like i became a supervisor in my teens and so it's just what i know like supervisors it's your job to fix problems so it just became part of who i am it's like my daughter would come to me she's talking about something she's like can you just hug me i'm like oh yes yes come in hug. you know but like that's that that's that mom love you know like i obviously raised them to the best of my ability they're great kids they're doing well but like i can't duplicate that piece you know and, and i hate it when people say oh you have to play both both roles like i, I can't play both roles i'm not equipped to, to be a mom you know and i think it's disrespectful to moms to say that you know what i mean so it's like i can just be the best dad i can be so i i, I just dive into that just because i want to see if that maybe played a role late later on in life when you went down that darker slope yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, there's an inherent lack of trust um, when you don't have that that connection. When you don't have what should have been basic needs, I guess. And and yeah. you know, I get lack of better word without having to feel like you're begging for love. Yeah. Um, and for sure, for a very long time. And I think I'm getting better about this now, but I mean, that definitely kept me from a certain closeness with other people, particularly women. Yeah. Um, you know, I kept them at arm's length and, you know, some of my behaviors when I was drinking as described in the book is I never let anybody get close to me. You know, yeah. I always had that sort of core base of friends who, you know, the people that would take a bullet for you and yeah. bury a body. And then, you know, <laughs> I was with social, I enjoyed getting to know, you know, and meet new people, but, as far as that sort of trust level and even in relationships. And then, you know, I, I didn't realize this at the time, but like I would complain if I was say in a relationship or, or starting to date a, date a girl. And if I didn't, I guess, trust her emotionally or, you know, I never gave myself completely to her and therefore she wasn't getting what she needed out of the relationship. So yeah. it's like, it was doomed from the start. Yeah, because, yeah, like, that's that can be devastating. Like I said, my two old, older kids, they say that all the time. Like, when I leave the house, like, say I'm just going, like, I live two two minutes away from, from the nearest grocery store. So, like, if I'm just going there, I don't, like, say goodbye to old, old, old people. You know, it's like I'm going to go for, you know, five five minutes, you know. So, but, like, my, my oldest daughter, she's like, no, 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 hugs, hugs, hugs. Because, like, she just has such a fear that I'm going to leave, you know, because, like, she – even though, like I said, I, I did very well with them. You know, like we, we didn't really, really struggle. You know, like I'm not that, not that dad that can't handle it. But she just has that inherent fear that I'm going to leave her. And I keep telling them, like, it's 19 straight years I've been coming back. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not going anywhere, you know. And, and I hate that, that she feels like that, you know. But I think a lot of it is because she doesn't really have the closure with the mother. Like in the last 15 years... I think she's seen them eight times, I want to say. Like, my oldest son wants nothing to do with her. But I, I think my daughter just has questions. Like, it's almost like she she just she feels unwanted and she wants to know why. You know, so I, with her, I definitely try to, try to, like, reassure her so she doesn't turn to other things. You know, so, like, so when did you first start turning into drinking? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just say when I was born. Um, okay. <laughs> so, but, wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> well, my, my father's, uh, he's got, God, I, I lose track all the time now. He's got about 35 years of sobriety now. Um, yeah. and you know, my mom was, was always sick one way or another. And it was tough to tell if she was drinking or drugging or if just the, kind of bottomless pit she would get herself into mm. um you know and i started drinking at a young age but well i i say young i mean I think the first time i got drunk i was like 14 maybe 13 or 14 yeah but drinking wasn't like a part of like a way of life back then because uh at the same time my dad was early in sobriety so his way of trying to keep me sober was more authoritative than okay. than he would have now and of course like yeah, a lot of times that causes rebellious kids. But I mean, this was a small island. I lived in a small house. I didn't have the freedoms to go be rebellious and not get caught. <laughs> you know, the guy at the liquor store was my hockey coach. Every cop on the island exactly. knew who I was. Like there was <laughs> so 
<laughs> what I what I found, and so I didn't really drink a lot. Like I, in the summer times, I, when I was a teenager, I, I probably drank like once or twice. And you know, I partied hard when I did. And I, I will say that my ability to handle booze came naturally. Um, same thing with high school. I didn't really drink a lot. Like, but when I was in college, I definitely started to pick up the quantity and frequency of which I drank. But I kind of discovered at that then I, that I had a bit of a superpower. Um, <laughs> I could drink large quantities of alcohol compared to other people and be functional. Yeah. Um, you know, what I didn't realize at the time though, is that I was sort of stunting my emotional growth. Um, you know, it's one thing, you know, you're 20, you're 20 years old, 21, you go out, you have a few drinks, a few too many, you're kind of feeling crummy the next day. It's, it's another, if you start making all of your life decisions based on how you can drink. Yes. Yes. You know, like uh, there's a Universal Studios, which is an hour and change down the road for me, has their Halloween Horror Nights every year. And I love Halloween. I'm an absolute nerd for Halloween. Yeah. And I lived in Florida for over a decade before I went there because it, I was like, how am I going to get there? I don't want to spend money for a hotel and blah, blah, blah. It never occurred to me. Just don't drink. Exactly. <laughs> never occurred to me that you don't have to go get drunk. Like, yeah, you can just go enjoy the place. And so, you know, the it kind of sneaks up on you because again, like the problem develops so slow over time, at least that you don't really see it and you don't really see the behaviors that you're doing. And it's so easy to justify, self-justify everything and blame other people, blame my mom, blame my dad. And you know, at the end of it, you're, you're the only one calling the shots. Yes. Yes. I'm so glad you said that because when I help people with their storytelling, like it's pretty much I do what we're doing here. You know, like I ask you questions, you answer questions, I write down things that you say, and then we piece together the parts that you that you can work on. You know, and so many people miss that part when they're talking about what happened to them. It's like, okay, so what happened to you? How are you gonna respond? It's like that's that's where the magic happens. You know, so it's like you can you can go down that rabbit hole and keep going and keep going and keep going. At some point, you got to get out of it. And only you are going to get yourself out of it. Like when people come to me for fitness and they're like, oh, I need you to fix me. Like, I, I can't fix you. You have to fix you. I said, I can give you the blueprint to fixing you. <laughs> I was like, but you have to fix you. Like you have to drink enough water. You have to get enough steps. You have to get yourself here four, four days a week. You have to follow the meal plan. Like that's all on you. You know, so once people realize that, then their lives can change. Being a, my career largely has been sort of a sales leader, VP of sales, director of sales in, in various industries, largely, largely logistics. And yeah. I've also grown and matured a lot uh, over the past 15 years. Cause you know, the first couple of years you're a manager, you've seen Wolf of Wall Street too many times and <laughs> the boiler room and you think there's a way to do things. But, yeah. you know, you, you learn how to work with people better and help them to find I mean, that's why I like the only reason I still like leading people is because I, I have the ability to help them find a better way to be themselves. Yes. But I have almost no tolerance for someone who doesn't take responsibility for themselves. Yeah. And there are some that just they can excuse away anything. And that's you can't fix that. That, that. They have to come to that Las Vegas moment where it's just you against you. It's so it's so so true. Like people think that I don't know what it's like to be to be overweight. I mean, and people that listen to this show, like they they've heard me tell tell the story. I'll just give the quick abridged version. But I I was forty five pounds overweight before, you know, and it had it, it happened one time, one time, and I told myself this will never happen again, and it, and it hasn't. And and I've had seven surgeries, and even through the seven surgeries, I still I said I will I will never get over two hundred pounds, let alone I was two twenty eight. Now, for my height, people are, oh, well, that, that's not bad. Like, yeah, not by my standard. You know, it's like I was an all-American athlete in track and field. Like, I had no business being 228 pounds. And it was because my, my ex vanished. You know, she tried to take my infant son and vanish. But I, I got wind of it, and then I was able to, in, to intercept it. But she still left anyway. And I used that as an excuse, you know, to stop doing my usual routines. And people would say, oh, well, you know, that's noble. You got to take, take care of your kid. But I was dying inside, you know. So even though, I, yes, I was giving him all of my attention, but I was losing myself in the process. And I'm like, what example am I going to be as he gets older and wants to start doing stuff? And then now I'm overweight, out of shape, and can't keep up with him. And so I made the decision. I had the aha moment 
coming out of the shower, caught my reflection, and was like, wow. And I was like, this needs to change. Like, it needs to change now. And I put the steps in to change it. And then I vowed to never go back. And, like, that's the problem with too many people is they're okay just being okay. Like, I'm not okay being okay. I want to be as badass as I can possibly be. You know, I'm 47 now. I can't do the things I could do at 25, but I can still do a whole lot that other 47-year-olds can't do. And I love that feeling. (laughs) That's what drives me. So when you had that Las Vegas moment, like, what led to it? It's like, why why were you drinking to that level? So – let me actually go back in the archives for just a little bit. Um, yep. So that was 2014. Um, 20, late 2012, I tore my hip uh, playing volleyball. And it was a stupid thing to do. It was like a nighttime in October, November. I hadn't warmed up. A buddy was like, hey, come on, we get the court. And I, I tore my labrum. And Oof. yeah, the surgery was brutal. The rehab was brutal. Um and at that point, I just packed it in. I mean, there was nothing left for me to do but drink. And when I was 230 pounds, okay. I'm five foot. I stood next to you. You got a few inches on me. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, what my aha moment was I was out in Vegas. Find, you'll find that I went to Vegas a lot. And um, I was, there was a picture of me and three of my buddies at the pool party. And one of my friends is like, well, actually, two of them are like six foot four, six foot five. Um, they take, they keep in great shape. The other guy is a little bit shorter than me and probably like one of the fittest dudes I know who doesn't race. And then there was me and I had man boobs and this huge gut and <laughs> like my face was just round. And I saw that picture which by the way, I got home and I took a side view of me. I still have it on my laptop. I have it in my fitness pal app. Like I want, I need to see that as often as possible. Yes. But, uh, and I lost about 40 pounds and I lost the 40 pounds before I stopped drinking. Okay. Um, the alcohol, like that just made me make a whole lot of really bad, selfish, stupid, self-destructive decisions. Mm -hmm. So I lost, I lost a lot of that weight. And you know, that, that's the thing is if you blame one part of your life, right? So, oh, if I'm just, I'm just overweight. Well, great. Now I was 190 pound drunk. So I was, and I was never done seeking that validation and that might be part of like, maybe part of the mom thing, maybe just part of being selfish and, and self-centered at the time. And so even though I was in a relationship for majority of the time, I was always seeking love and elsewhere. Um, and so as I got drunker and the world got darker around me, that always kind of seemed to be the play. Um, you know, where can I, where can I go get myself into some trouble right now? Yeah. And so it was, it was late. It was at the end of 2013 where I'd gone out for happy hour one night with some people from work, literally for a drink. And then I went home and I'm on the couch with my girlfriend at the time. And I got a text from my boss, who was a very good friend of mine, friend of mine saying how somebody was kind of talking trash. Like I was playing around with some girl at work or something, one that I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I got so mad at whoever was talking trash yeah. and I'm yelling at him. And he was just telling me as a heads up, like, Hey, people are saying crap about you. Yeah. You know, again, I was putting it on him. I was putting it on the person who was talking. Never occurred to me, maybe my behavior is causing this. And so I did make a decision that night. I made a decision. I was going to stop drinking because I was tired of other people's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly that was, uh, I, I, and that was like December and I wasn't even going to stop drinking then. I was going to stop drinking like a month and a half later at my buddy's, after my buddy's bachelor party. So you can tell how serious I was taking it. Yeah. And, uh, and I did, you know, we, we toasted to some Johnny Walker blue and I was like, all right, I'm going to stop drinking. Uh, I grew up around AA and I, my opinion of it at the time was just how I remembered my parents as kids. And so I didn't want to do that route. And yeah. so I spent about three months just kind of white knuckling my way through it. And I was jumping into every challenge I could. If there was a happy hour, I went. A birthday party, I went. You know, I'm like, just just let me sniff it. Anything I could that just tempting fate. And uh, I was miserable. It was the most unhappy three months of my life. And so when I went out to Vegas, there was just, I mean, it was a work conference. And we all went out there the night before so we could, like, before the conference started, so we could have some fun and not interfere with work. Yeah. Yeah. 
so really it was just all the culmination of the fact that I wasn't dealing with the issue that I needed to was alcohol wasn't the problem. It was the symptom. Um, I wasn't, I had no spirituality. I believed in God. I did not believe God was good. Uh, it was me against the world. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who can't like, and, and again, this is my perspective. This is my life. So yeah. but there are a lot of people who ready to go to war with the world every day. And I just can't do that anymore. It's exhausting. The only way I could do that is if I was able to drink about it after. Um, it's even the name of the chapter of the book, One Last Drink Before the War, because I was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> well, I lost that war. And so, I mean, the night that night, I remember we were at, uh, it was just me and a couple of the guys. Jaw ja Rule was up on the uh, at the club okay. and I'm in a good mood. But I didn't want them to know I was drinking. So I just sat there unhappy for hours. And I waited up till everybody else went to bed before I even started drinking. I started drinking at like two or three in the morning at the casino by myself and I kept going. And then we're at a pool party the next day and I'm just, I'm pretending it's water. You know, I'm everyone I'm sure knew exactly what was happening, but in my mind I was being all secretive. And uh, you know, at that point, I mean, I wasn't, I had no off switch. The off switch had been broken and I was going to go until I ended up in jail or dead. And I'm fortunate because it was a very public showing. Um, nobody saw what happened that night, but everybody knew about it because I was trespassed from the property. I, I was supposed to be a speaker the next day and I wasn't oh, even no. there. Yeah. Um, miraculously, I kept my job. Miraculously, I kept my girlfriend. I mean, I hit what I call a false bottom. And uh, I was really lucky that that happened in such a way that allowed me to realize I need help. I can't do this on my own. Whatever I think is right or wrong, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I just need to go clean slate and, and get some help. And fortunately, I didn't have to, you know, and I, I know there was a lot worse I could have gone to. Yeah. And there's, you know, the, the, the beauty in sharing that story is that there's a lot of people who are there. They're at that point to where they're self-medicating. They're numbing the pain. Happens like my, my dad fought in Vietnam. And when, when I was younger, he would sit in this rocking chair and he'd ha have a beer or, he, or he'd have his, uh, uh, what the hell did he drink? I don't know, but he had some, something else. And he, he was just like, he, he was never like mean or abusive or anything, but we just knew when he's in his rocking chair, don't mess with him. And so, you know, he, we lost him in 2019 and towards the tail end there, we were trying to get benefits from the VA and he had like, so they give a stipend for PTSD. And so, but he had to speak about the things that he went through because he, he never spoke about the war. There, there was once, I think this was in like 2017 or 2016, we were in the pool at my parents' house and he opened up a little bit and all of us were just kind of looking at each other like, um, <laughs> you know, and I was always like, not going to share what it, what he said, but like, I wish I'd never heard it, any of it. We could talk about that offline. I had a similar experience with my uncle. So, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, uh, you know, it just put it into perspective why, why he drank so much when we were younger, you know, like trying to suppress those, those memories, but it takes, you know, situations like, like yours to hit that, what do you call it? A false rock bottom? False bottom. Yeah. So it was like, but people have to hit whatever their bottom was. Like for me, it was seeing that reflection in the mirror and was like, what the, like you were an all American athlete, dude. You know, it's like you were this close to the Olympics. You were one knee injury away from the Olympics. And that is what you, that's what you did to yourself. I was like, no, I was like, that's not us. That's not what we're all about. So then I was a restaurant manager. Then I wasn't even into fitness. So I was around food all day long. But still, like, I, I put that conviction in my heart that this will never happen again. And, you know, bringing on guests like you, sharing your, your story of overcoming. We haven't even gotten to the cancer stuff yet. You know, but, show, but showing these stories is good to help other people. You know, so that person that's in that dark, sunken place can hear this episode. They can read your book and give them hope of getting to the other side. That's ultimately why I published it. Um... I started writing it for me. Um, there's been a tale. I mean, there is a story there, you know, and I mean, it's it, it, my life has been changed in the last three years. And again, like, so I got sober in 2014. I didn't start racing till the end of 2016. Wrong one. <laughs> and again, still trying to kind of figure out my life. But 
it was when my my boss at the time had walked into my office and he was like, Hey, uh, I want to do the Spartan race next month. You should do it with me. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like running eight miles or so and doing all, hell no. And I, I just, I was like, no way. I don't want to be that uncomfortable. And, you know, I went home that night though. And I realized like there was something missing from my life and I was uncomfortable already. You know, I mean, I had everything going for me at that point. My, my job was going well relationship. Uh, I just started dating my current wife. Like, you know, things were, were going really well. And yet I just had this whole, and I had literally, and I, again, this is why writing the book was important. Yes. I didn't realize the timing at the time I had just, just survived my fourth time with cancer. And I think I, I put it into a vacuum at the time. You know, like, okay, well, that's done. What's next? Which is a really dumb way to live. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's when I, when I kind of started getting into it, I just, I realized that all my excuses were just, were nonsense. So, um, yep. Trailed off completely on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, well, let's, let's go back to the first time. So like what, what happened the first time? Like what type, how did you find out? What was your initial feeling? So here's what's interesting. I was actually on a, a show during the lockdown um, and uh, one of the other guests um, also had a very invasive, you know, uh, story with cancer. And it's, it's funny to see the way people deal with things differently. And I'm different than most. I don't become the doctor. Um, yeah. That's not right, wrong or otherwise. That's just how I chose to deal with it. So yeah. it was 2005. Um, and I started, I had just moved into an apartment in Milford, you know, those old New England buildings. It yeah. was winter and it was just really dry air. And I started waking up with like a dark substance on the bottom of my tongue mm. every morning. And I had no idea what it was. And then I decided it was blood. So I started seeing a doctor and I kept seeing every doctor there was like, you know, is it from the stomach? Is it coming from this? Like, uh, and I finally saw uh, an ENT. And he's feeling around and it was the strangest feeling because I cancer is not something I had ever considered before. It's one of those things that if you don't have in your life, you don't really think about that much. Like, yeah. And he paused, he put his fingers like right there and he paused for just a second. And for some reason, I swear to God, I knew, mm-hmm. I just knew, I don't know why, but I knew. And so we had to do a biopsy of the neck um, which was extraordinarily unpleasant. <laughs> and, uh, I refer to it like that scene in Casino where Pesci takes the knife or the pen. Mm, yep. So yeah. it turns out it was a thyroid cancer or papillary carcinoma. Um, okay. As far as cancers go, it's probably the one you want. It's, okay. it's not very aggressive. And theoretically, you can take out the thyroid without having to have a tremendous amount of complications. Yeah. At the time, though, well, it was cancer. And that's all I knew. I was living alone. I was like 25. I didn't really have much money. It was winter. I mean, as it was, there weren't a lot of reasons to live. It was winter in New England. So, (laughs) and uh, this goes back to what I said earlier too, about why it's so important to have written the book, not just publish them, but to write it is the things you see differently. Cause I can admit now something I wasn't able to admit for the last better part of 20 years that I was scared. I said I wasn't. I, I said I didn't really care if I live or died for a very long time or I was, you know, not afraid of death. And I'm not sure I'm afraid of it right now, but I care. Yeah. <laughs> I care a lot. <laughs> and that unknown part of it is definitely scary. So, uh, you know, I had to go through just a, a pretty invasive surgery. They removed half my thyroid. Um, theoretically, they removed all of it, but we'll get to that. And, uh, you know, and then you take some, you basically have to take some like radioactive iodine. It's, it's not invasive. You take a pill, you go home and hide out for the world for three days. Cause it, you're actually radioactive. Oh. Um, and then I have to take pills to regulate my metabolism. And to be honest, that's actually the, at this point in my life, that's the challenging part of the cancer experience for me is that, you know, your metabolism and pretty much everything, your endocrine system is regulated to the thyroid. And well, 15 years later, I still don't have the meds, right? So it's always like this or like that. And you're just kind of dealing with things that are unforeseen, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So I want to just hi- highlight something you just said too about writing it down. Cause on yesterday's show, we were talking about emotional, emotional intelligence, emotional fitness, and what the guests had mentioned about writing yourself a letter. 
you know, so for people that have have trouble trying to verbalizing what they're going through, or if they're not ready to talk to someone yet to just get a notebook and just write themselves a letter. He's like, or even if it's someone that hurt you, you can write a letter to them. He's like, you don't necessarily have to send it. He's like, it's just the act of getting it down on paper so you can read it, sort through it and accept it. So it kind of sounds like that's exactly what it did for you. But then you realize I can help other people with this as well. That was the point I was going to make when I trailed off. Is that uh, (laughs) I had to be honest about who I was. Yes. I had to be extraordinarily naked about who I was. Um, I mean, I tried to give some people a heads up about things that are in that book. Um, And some people, well, whatever, they'll find out the hard way. (laughs) But (laughs) um, without being, I mean, the second chapter gets really live and says, I got thrown out of a Vegas hotel for trying to bang a hooker in a closet. I mean, like I had to say that part because otherwise I'm just a 40 year old guy who's not very good at obstacles. (laughs) (laughs) And if you, without just getting down into the complete nitty gritty of who I was and who I am now really doesn't matter. Yes. Yeah, see, and that's, that's the beauty of it. See, that's the beauty of it. So when I work with people and trying to help them tell, tell the stories, they don't want to put in the dirty parts, but, but it's like, that's a part of you. Like those things happen. And by just accepting it, it actually makes people connect with you even deeper. Know, know what I mean? It's like, and that's what people don't realize is so to get up here and just say a bunch of happy, happy go lucky stuff, you know, then you just become just another another speaker. But to actually put yourself out there, to actually be vulnerable and talk about the ugly things that you have gone through, how you moved on from it and became the person you are today, that's the beauty of it. You know, so kudos to you for recognizing that and moving forth with it and putting yourself out there like that. When I first started writing it, I wrote it for me. Uh, there was a lot to get down. Um, the races and stuff were, I keep decent journals. Um, and you talked about writing down the emotional part. I don't journal just like three reps of this and six intervals of that. Like yeah. I actually write about how I how I felt during the run, what thoughts were in my head, what what's emotional going on in my life. Because there's a direct correlation, 100%, if I've got some negative stressors in my life to my performance in a workout. Um, and the exact opposite is true. When I'm just feeling good mentally, I work out well physically. And, you know, so I was just, the race part was, was kind of easy. And again, I just wrote it to write it at the time. The other things as I was going through it, when it finally became a book and I decided to like, all right, am I going to do anything with this? That's when I realized is that, yeah, there's a message in here and there are people who are struggling and they need to know there's a better way. Um, if there's somebody I just hope that the person it can help somehow finds it. And then if it gets them to find their way, whether it be with alcohol, diabetes, cancer, just a bad day, whatever the thing is, whatever that struggle is that somebody has, somebody else has had that struggle and somebody else knows. Yes, Yes, exactly. And people tend to seek out other people who are currently struggling and that's not the way to go. You got to find out, you got to find the one that, that got through it. No, and speaking of obstacle racing, so you were just on the suck fest known as Killington. I thought so, we weren't. Gonna, I thought we weren't going to make me cry today. <laughs> my, my bad. So I, I did it in 2017 and 2018. It gave me rhabdo and landed in the hospital twice. And now the one in 2017, I didn't really train for. I wasn't supposed to do it. I was a dumbass. I woke up that morning and I jumped in. Right. So that one is Killington, no problem. Yeah, like that one was on me. You know, so. That was my the fifth time I had done it. So I was like, yeah, you know, I know this mountain. I'll be fine. But no, I, I wasn't fine. And so for people that don't know what rhabdo is, where your muscles are so overworked and it secretes a protein called myoglobin and it, 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 into the bloodstream and it can clog the kidneys. Mm. And I only have one because my sister has the other one. So when you only have one, now it's you're obviously at twice the risk now because instead of having two of them filtering the blood, you only have one. And so I never knew that that was a thing. And so for me to never, ever want to admit defeat, I trained hard and I came back for 2018 and it landed me in the hospital again. <laughs> and so, and when I tell you, I trained hard, even during the race, I felt good. Like in 2017, towards the end, like, like I, I felt the full effects of it. I was like, something's not right here. 
And so 2018, I, I felt good. But something told me, you know, just with the one kidney, I kind of had that in the back of my mind. I said, let me just go, go, go to the DER and get my levels checked just to be safe. And then I was in the hospital for four days. <laughs> so, wow. And so now that year, 2018, I was scheduled. Well, I had failed the, the New Jersey Ultra because uh, my knees just couldn't handle the mountain. Like there's, there's nothing else I could have done to train for that. Just my, I had three knee surgeries. So my knees were just like after the first lap, they were like sit your ass down. So, but I still needed... I needed one because my goal was to do an ultra. So I signed up for the South Carolina one and I went to see my doctor and he was like pleading with me to not do it. He's like, he's like, oh, like he was like teary eyed. You know, he's like, Robert, he's like, it's not worth it. He's like, you, you have, you have your children. He's like, you have your, your clients, you know, these people who, who depend on you, like they need you. And I was like, I love that, but I'm going to go find someone who did an ultra with one kidney. <laughs> and, and I loved it at that. So I went to uh, the Spartan Ultra page on Facebook and I just put a post out there. Has anyone done this Ultra with one kidney? And I got six responses. So I linked up with the six, you know, vir- virtually. And I'd, like, how did you hydrate yourself? How did you balance your electrolytes? What was your training regimen? And I found out how they did it. And then I went and I did it. And I did not land myself back in the hospital again. You know, so... Back to my, my point is people find people who are having similar struggles, but that doesn't help you get through it. So you got to find the someone that moved on from the struggle, like someone right now that's struggling with alcoholism. They need you. They need this book, you know, because you got through it like you got to the other side. And that's how we learn and grow. Even in business, like you got to find someone that has the success that you want. You can't find someone on the same level. <laughs> it's like, how are you going to grow? Yeah, you can swap stories, but you're not going to grow. So I, uh, it's funny you bring up business real quick. And, and as you bring up Killington too, uh, I had a good career. I spent about 15 years at one place down here. I was a VP of sales and I left in 2019 and I started a sales consulting company for a while. Okay. Um, and about a year into it, I brought on a pretty decent client who at the end of our project brought me on full time. Okay. And I worked there. Um, there was some issues with the company. So I ended up getting out and for a very short period of time, I jumped into something different and I hated it. And literally two days before Palmerton, six days before my sobriety day, I mean, it was like poisoning me. Mm. So I left. No paycheck, no nothing, because my mental and spiritual health, above all, are more important. And the lessons that I have learned is that if I keep moving forward, I know I can do better. I believe I can do better. I believe there's something out there for me. Now, keep moving forward doesn't mean show up. It means you have to relentlessly move forward in the pursuit of your dreams. And so there's no roadmap for that, though. You know, so to your point, uh, what I did was. I've been in in one industry for 15 years. I've acquired a lot of really smart friends (laughs) who've been in the business a long time. And so I reached out to people who are now CEOs of $6 billion companies and like uh, publicly traded companies, like just people that are, have made it. And it's not like they woke up one day and were successful. So I, I called them up and I, I was really humbled at the amount of people that took time to speak to me knowing that there was nothing going to be in return. Like they were just giving me advice and help. And um, what was really great is some of those people knew me then, some of those know know me now. And you were able to get different kind of objective advice on here. Here's what I did when I was you. Here's what I did when I was you. I mean, not for nothing. I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit now because as I, uh, one of your shows a couple episodes back, um, you were talking about how, you know, with road, no roadmap and wanting to be a speaker and wanting to put out content, you're like, just got to do it. Like, just do it. Like, you figure it out. And the reason I'm kicking myself a little bit is I'm like, you know, I had seven, about eight weeks without work. I could have flipped a coin and tried to find a different path of life in that amount of time rather yeah. than going and look, you know, spending that time looking for a full-time job. But the reason I bring that in reference with Killington is that I, I put a lot on that race. It was sort of a, a metaphor for my life at the current standpoint. Like, you know, you can't help but get a little bit of imposter syndrome when there's nothing more humbling than looking for work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you are trying to kind of be at a high level, you, you start to doubt, like you brought up earlier today, self-doubt. You know, am I good enough? Can I do this? And so, unfortunately, the Killington result didn't really leave me with the positive feeling that I wanted. But... <laughs> 
It's true. But see, the thing is, on my on my Facebook story, just like an hour or so ago, I had posted, I was on somebody else's show. And sometimes, you know, when you're talking, you, you say some really, really good stuff, but you don't even realize it. And so the host of the other show posted a quote I said during the episode, which I, I didn't even realize I said it. Nice. I said, said, I would rather try and fail than not try. You know, because there's still there's still a lesson there. Even though you didn't reach the finish line that you wanted to reach, there's still lessons there. You know, and yeah. there's still there's there's moments that you can take from that. Like like when I talk about the Jersey Ultra, I don't look at it as a failure because I tried it. I saw where I had to draw the line. I saw where I had to tweak my training. I saw where I had to tweak my nutrition, and I knew that this is not going to happen on the mountain. You know, so like I didn't take it as a failure. I just look, look at that. All the lessons that I got, I still have the penny hanging up in my bedroom, you know, just to remind me like that, that one was out of your league and that's okay. You know, it's, I'm not saying Killington was out of your league. I'm just saying for me, you know, so for, for like, I would never try the Killington one. My, my knees would explode. But like, I just knew for me, it's all right, that's not it. So I have to find another way to get my buckle, you know, and, and that's, that's okay. It's like some people, even that day, because my daughter and I ended up going over there just to try to cheer people up because so, so many of the ultras were so miserable. And and I was letting people know because they were just so hard on themselves. And I was like, hey, listen, listen, like you're going to live to fight another day. Like it's all right. You know, so just take what you learn from this experience and go back and crush your training. And then whatever your next your next uh, challenge is, go go crush that one. Then if by chance, maybe something happened and you DNF that one, then crush the next one. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't look backwards, you know? So just because it didn't happen then doesn't mean you're not going to have success on the next one. I missed uh, I missed cut off by about eight minutes. And at the time I had told myself there's nothing different I could have done. You know, I failed this one thing here, but uh, I'm not sure if you had seen uh, a post that I, I put up the other day, but Number one, I had two good moments in that race. One is I made the rig with the ropes, which was awesome because I suck at that one. Uh, number two, though, with about 153, right, walking into the sandbag, me and everybody else around us knew our race was over. We yeah. were not going to make cutoff. Yeah. There was no reason to do the sandbag. Yeah. And it just came out of my mouth, said to the guy next to me, I'm like, well, you know what? I'd rather fail than quit. Yes. Time's on the clock. And I don't think I had to talk anybody into it. Everyone else seemed to have the same thing. The, the day isn't over yet. Like yep. so grab the sandbag two o'clock past while we're on it. But that was a, that was the moment that I needed to know something from this race. And unfortunately I didn't get the answer I wanted, but I do know, I don't know how to quit. That, that's yes. still very apparent to me. I had, nobody would have faulted me for being like, Oh, well it's over. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, at least so I can leave, leave that part on the field. Yeah. So one of the guys, one of my, one of my clients did it and the friend of his, which coincidentally, I haven't seen this kid since he was like 12. <laughs> and so I walk into, into uh, the room and he, he's like, you know, Rob, Chris, he's like, Rob, he's like, did you go to Charahoe? Like my high school? I was like, yeah. He's like, Rob Foster? I was like, get out. And I was like, well, like what's what's the chances that his roommate would have been some, someone that, that I knew, you know? But right. Anyway, so he was on his fourth go around. Like, and he failed it again. So he's failed four times, but he is determined to get it done. Oh, I already set my timer. I'm coming back. Yeah. <laughs> I saw, I saw the timer on, on your page. It's like, yeah, he's like, he's, he's determined. Like he, uh, he had the mentality that you had, but he saw it through. <laughs> he's like, he, he's like, he got to the sandbag and was like, F that. <laughs> you I, know, but, I don't blame him either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I was the same in New Jersey. It's like, I knew. I knew with the last downhill, I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to finish the second lap. And th this was before we came out that long sandbag carry. Because typically the sandbag carry in New Jersey is not that bad. But that year they moved it where it was longer and steeper. And so, and that's when the first year they moved from the 40-pound pancakes to the 70-pound bags now or however much those bags weigh. So I was training with a 50-pounder. So, like, I wasn't ready for that. And then when I came up that hill, uh, the person I was running with, I was like, go make the cutoff. I said, don't worry about me. I was like, I'm going to finish the lap, but you go and make sure you finish. You know, so she takes off. And uh, and I'm like 
baby stepping. Like, like I'm in hell right now. And I got a stick out of the woods. And I was like, I, I, so I just shifted my goal because I knew I wasn't going to make the second level. I'm like, just make cutoff. And like, if you make cutoff, this is a success. And so like, I'm trudging down, trudging down. You see the people d- down there with, I made it with 30 seconds to spare. Nice. <laughs> so like, I walked in, I was like, take the band. <laughs> they're like, but, but they're like, but you made it. I said, no, no, no just take it because I'm done. <laughs> I was like, my race was to get here. <laughs> so, if it weren't for, and I'm not blaming diabetes, but if I had maybe ten extra minutes, like I had to, I needed to not just get there. I had to switch out my fuel. Like I had nothing mm-hmm. left, and my blood sugars were would not stay up the whole race. You know, at one fifteen, could I have? gun to everything and somehow made it in. Yeah. But I don't think I had enough time to switch out my fuel and, and get out. And without it, like at that point I would have just died. So <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't want that. Actually died. <laughs> <laughs> so what was this your, your first stab at an ultra? Or have you done others? Uh, I did Dallas in 18 and Ohio in 19. And I mean, those are just, they're completely different races, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been to it on the Ohio course. I mean, yeah, they're both suffer fest and yeah, but what I realized too is that this was the perfect race for me. Um, I want, I want that race that most people don't finish. Yeah. I just want to be one of the ones who do. And so I, I know what the challenge really has to be because I'm going to run the Chicago marathon in three weeks and I'm going to run hopefully a PR for me, which is not any number that anyone else in the world would be excited about. So, but there was something different about a race like Killington. Most people won't sign up for that ultra and apparently most people don't get through it. So yeah, I think, I think a- it was what? 83% DNF rate. I think, I think that was an open and 73% in age group. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of us who came up short can hold their heads up high, but I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that race to just get by. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But at least you've, you've experienced it. You know, know what you got to do, hopefully, you know, for next time. And I'd get out there and crush it. Oh, I'm, I left part of my soul out there in about 360 days. I'm taking it back. That's right. <laughs> I know. It's like I keep taking it back and, th- and then giving it back again. <laughs> <laughs> like in 20, 2014 was one of the worst ones ever there. And like a dumbass, I, I did it. I did the beast Saturday and Sunday. And when I tell you the tail end, and I, I can't even claim I did it because I'll, I'll be up front. I think I skipped the last six obstacles on that second day. Like, I was just dead. I was completely dead. <laughs> my son my son just said he, he won't even do the Killington Sprint. <laughs> <laughs> he, he used to always say he's not doing any race that has the word kill in it. oh my lord but like what people don't understand is that these races they're the ultimate metaphor of life i actually did a key a keynote speech on this topic and it was about like when you cross the fit when you cross the start line nothing is going to stop you from crossing the finish line you know with in in a normal a normal beast i know (laughs) ultra is a different animal but but it's like you like you would have to be damn near on your deathbed to be taken off the course and but yet in everyday life we hit that first wall and we quit you know like someone tries to start start a business or start something and you'll get that first no well i guess that that's a sign i'm not meant to do this like in, in these obstacles you get beat up Right, you get beat up. You got the different the different terrains. You're going through through water. Some places have that red clay kind of mud type of thing. Attica is half sand. You know, like Ohio cactus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep, yep. You got that out there in Dallas, and you know, there's so many different elements. Like uh, weather is is an issue. When I did when I did the Ohio Beast in 20, I believe it was 15. There was all types of weather. It was snowing. It was hailing. It was windy. Wow. It, it rained. Oh, it was awful. It was absolute, probably, probably my most unpleasant race besides the Jersey Super in the Nor'easter, you know, but it's like, there's so many different elements, but you don't quit, you know, like life throws everything at you, but you keep going, you roll an ankle, you keep going, you see people crawling up, up and down the mountain. And it's like, you know, do, do you want, want a medic? No, because if you get a medic, they're going to pull me off the course. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just imagine taking just an ounce of that into your everyday life. You know, the, oh, that's right. I forgot my son was there too. He said Ohio definitely sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, but but like just to take a little bit of that into everyday life, 
You know, I mean, like so many people would would struggle so much less. Here's my big takeaway from this race that applies to my life and and everyone else, because again, I missed it by minutes, right? So if I get one more grab on Twister, I nail it. If my diabetes isn't screwed up, if I hit this one obstacle, if I knew how close I was at 115, right? That's the part that sucks though, because if I could have gone harder, why didn't I? Yeah. And that's the part that I got to carry with me right now, given in a big race like that, yeah, you have to understand that it's a long day, you know, and it's a long life. So it's not, but at the same time, if I could have, I should have. And hopefully that's something I that's that's hopefully a lesson I don't forget anytime soon. Yeah, it's like being a track and field athlete. I mean, with any sport, really, but like in track, even though, yeah, you do track team points, but, you know, it's an individual sport. And it's like you give that everything because in track, it can be come down to a hundredth of a second. You know what I mean? That like that's that. <laughs> and it could be your start, it could be your stride length, it could be your posture. Like there's so many little details. Mm-hmm. And like I coach the high jump because a lot of people don't know how to coach it. But there's so many little details that can change the trajectory of, of your jump. And it's like after it's like, oh wow, if I just snapped my foot a second sooner, I would have been the New England champion. <laughs> you know, just just a little because my foot grazed the bar. It, it, it uh, bobbled and it fell. Had I made it on that first jump, I, I ended up getting sixth six place. I would have I been first place if I nailed it on that first jump. And it's like, that was such a hard pill, pill to swallow. But, the, but as a coach now, it just makes me more keen when I'm working with the athletes. Like something like that can be the difference of D, D1 recruiting and just barely making a medal. So, all right, look at this. Man, these hours fly by. Absolutely fly by. All right, so what would you say is the biggest takeaway out of your book? The perspective of my own life. Uh, as far and, and the reason I say that, even though it, the question might be geared for others, I a lot of people hit me up when I put this out. Um, obviously, I'm pretty active in social media and with Spartan 4.0 and some other groups as well. And, um, you know, what was interesting is that a number of people dealing with cancer or some people dealing with diabetes or, or some people dealing with alcoholism. But here's the thing that was interesting to me that I hadn't planned on the number of people who reached out to me, who said, I need to do this too. And it is, it's true. Um, all the lessons, all the things that I talk about now are lessons that I learned from telling my own story. Yeah. I, you know, at the time you're just going through it, you're doing what you can to survive. And some things as, as you go through the book, you might notice, I, I don't know if people will see this or not, but I did it on purpose. If they did, the attitudes change a little bit. You know, I even talk about the first time I got cancer and I said, Oh man, I have to live with this. Mm. The second time I got cancer was I get to live with this. You know, now it's, Oh, cancer's got to live with me. Yeah. <laughs> and you be- you begin to appreciate things a little more. You begin to become less of a victim. Um, you know, and also like, again, you, you look at the personal responsibility and some of the perspective, you know, like we talked about my relationship with my mom for a moment and I was never angry with her, but at the same time I realized maybe I could have taken that relationship different. Maybe, you know, there's just ways to evolve. And if you don't take a hard look at yourself, you can't get, well, you can't get out of the fire. I mean, that's, if you're waiting for somebody else to rescue you, why would the person who put you in it take you out? I hope my son is still listening because, well, because I told you he's got that strained relationship with with his mom, and I try to help to help him understand that forgiveness is for you. Yeah, you know, like, and- like that doesn't mean you're gonna forget what she did, but you you have to you have to for, for, forgive in your heart so you can move on and not carry that weight the rest of your life. My mom passed away in 2015, and thankfully I was sober. Yeah. Um, and from what I hear, so was she, but. I realize, and I don't know if I would have done anything different, and I don't like to, to ruminate on, on possible regrets very much, you know, but at the same time, maybe I never had the mom, could have had the mom I wanted, but it's like, she still could have had a son. And yes. just because people don't live up to our expectations, is that their fault? Yeah. So, you know, where's the good, it's a risk versus reward thing. And uh, 
when I got married the first time, I wasn't going to invite her to my wedding. And my grandfather suggested that I did. He wasn't very pressuring. And he, he just told me, which one am I going to regret more? Mm. And I'm like, okay. So I invited her. I was glad she was there. And it's one of the few decent memories I have of her. So um, biggest takeaway from the book is number one, your excuses are bullshit, whatever we think they are. 100% stop saying them. You're wasting our time. Um, we have to accept the things that are there. You know, you mentioned about the knee and the kidney. You have to accept that. I have to accept I'm a diabetic. I can't pretend yeah. I'm not. Yeah. That doesn't mean I can't do things. It just means I have to take a different approach. I have to do it differently. So the biggest takeaway is, is number one, there is nobody. Well, the biggest takeaway is nobody's going to take you out of the fire by yourself. And there's nothing that should prevent us from going after whatever it is that we want. And again, I'd rather fail than quit. Exactly. And I love the title through the fire. I love that kind of works out perfect in our world, right? With the- <laughs> <laughs> true. Very true. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to share your story with us. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah. And um, you know, maybe we'll check in again down, down the line, see what you're up to. Sounds good. All right. And uh, if you want to get on some other shows, I have a bunch of podcast friends I can connect you with. Cool. That'd be great. You no, know, so get out there, spread the word. You know, pimp out your book a little, and uh, see what happens. Have a great, uh, have a great race this weekend. Oh, we'll do, we'll do. I'm sure we'll, we'll, uh, you know, have photos and all that good stuff. Now that I finally get to meet people, I know, right? <laughs> it's like right when I joined, when I when I joined 4.0, I ended up having knee surgery, so I missed a lot of races. And then 2020 happened. <laughs> it's, like, it's like it's like I'm in the group, and it's like I really don't know anyone. <laughs> so, so it was nice meeting a few. few I was few glad I got to meet you in person. Yep, got to meet you. So this is good. Going to meet meet a few more this weekend. So it's exciting. It's exciting. Oh, Tony was Tony Ann was listening. Said great interview. Thank you, Tony Ann. Thanks, Tony Ann. All right, man. Have yourself a great day. And uh, don't you. don't sign out yet, though. Please. Okay. All right. All righty. So if you're tuning in late and you missed some of it, make sure sure you go back. You can watch it anywhere that you get your podcast. So it'll be on. The main one is I use Anchor, but you can get it anywhere. iHeartRadio, uh, Amazon, uh, Apple, whatever, uh, wherever you get them. So I will be back. I'm not going to be back tomorrow because we did it today instead because I'm traveling tomorrow. So I'll be back on Tuesday with another episode, with another great guest, with another inspiring story. So thank you very much for tuning in and have a great day. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion.